0: Well, good morning, everyone. And again, welcome to fellowship and welcome to the time of uh, preaching and teaching the Word of God, which is, uh, of course, a very important part of our worship and why we, when we gather each week, we take time to listen to the Word of God uh, read and then the Word of God preached. It is part of how uh, believers are to worship God and we as a church have been walking through the book of Acts and so I'm going to continue in, uh, in that series and I'll continue it through next week. Next week we will finish chapter 13 and uh, then we'll take a break and we'll pick up with chapter 14 and uh, continue on in the book sometime later down the road, not exactly sure when that will be but we will pick it back up and then through the summer, uh, we'll be able to talk and introduce some, a little bit of some different topics for us uh, to hear from um, as we uh, continue to seek the Lord for direction and seek his word. But today, as we look into the text, we're going to see that the God of the scriptures is the God of all history. He's not just the God of the past, but he's the God of all history. In, in today's text, and what I mean by that is even what he's doing in the present, in, in today's text, Paul, the apostle, what he does is he walks his listeners through uh, some of the Jewish history, but for what purpose does he do that? Is, is history even important. And, and what can we learn from history? For those of us who, who've been in school or college taking courses, you have to learn history, not uh, a favorite subject of everyone's, but it is part of, of what is considered to be uh, an, an educational degree to understand history. Winston Churchill famously said, "Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it." It's one of his classic lines, and is that true? Or, or should I say, really, to all of you, do you believe that it—that statement is true? Just because something happened in the past, does that mean, does that mean that it that it will happen again? Probably not. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but it does mean that we can learn something from what happened in the past. And, and when we are talking about an unchanging, faithful God, think about that, an unchanging, faithful God, it seems quite important to learn from history. And so today we're going to see that God worked in, in, a, in a very specific way in the past, and, and, and Paul is intentionally telling all these people what God did, and, and he's doing that because his work in the past was meant to tell us something about how he will continue to work in the present and in the future. And so let's seek then together to understand what God is doing in the present by understanding what he has done in history. Because he is the God of all history. So let's pray together and ask God to continue to guide and direct us. Lord God, we thank you already for this time that we've had together on this Lord's Day. Where we gather in your name to worship you. We thank you for the, for the truth of the songs that we have sung. For the scripture we have heard. For the giving that we've that that we have brought before you as an act of worship. And now, Lord God, we pray that you would continue to bless our worship as we hear, listen to, and respond to the word of God. Give us ears to hear, especially where there, there may be situations in our own life, in our own life that would prevent us from hearing clearly. Speak to our hearts. May our hearts be open. May our eyes be open. Lord God, Spirit of God, do the work. We pray, we ask you to do the work that only you can do. And do it in the power of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, Pastor Tim got us started in uh, chapter 13 and he shared, uh, well, it was actually two weeks ago and he shared what happened in, in Cyprus with the, with the false prophet and the proconsul and, and we saw the power of our God against the forces of evil that were seeking to pervert his truth. And that always is happening. When the, when the gospel is going out, there, there, are, there are the forces of evil seeking to pervert the truth of God. And so we, we saw that. And now we're going to pick up here where Luke continues to take us with Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. And, they, and they're picking up with leaving Cyprus. And so we start with Paul and Barnabas going to Perga and then to Pisidian Antioch. And you see that in verses 13 and 14. So what happened is leaving Cyprus, they sailed north nearly 200 miles across the Mediterranean Sea. And then they landed at the port of Perga. And Luke tells us here that this is where John Mark leaves them and he heads back to Jerusalem. Now, Luke is telling us this very specifically, but he also provides very little detail. And again, he's doing that intentionally. Remember, he didn't forget something. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he's telling us that this happened, but not giving us much more detail. Now, we know later in the, from later in the book of Acts and from other, some of other Paul's writing that Paul was not happy with John Mark's decision to leave. And so what we see here is even with the apostles there was some relational conflict among those in ministry. Can you imagine that? People in ministry having relational conflict. That's you know that shouldn't be. Sometimes we think that because we think well you're in ministry and you're committed to the Lord and committed to the gospel so therefore you're not human. No you we are human even even those of us who are who are in ministry and even in ministry where where we're proclaiming the word as Paul was doing as Barnabas was doing as John Mark was doing Mark wrote the gospel of of Mark I mean so so like there there's some important stuff happening here but yet we see that there was some still relational conflict Now, we're not gonna go into more of that because I wanna continue into the text and Luke doesn't take us further into that. So after John Mark leaves, Paul and Barnabas, they begin their journey to Pisidian Antioch and that's not to be confused with Antioch in Syria where we already studied and learned about. Pisidian Antioch was about 100 miles away and the journey there was difficult. Uh, They had to walk through the Taurus mountain range which was a difficult passage. Most scholars believe that they took that route here, if you look at the map, in green, which was a little bit more difficult as opposed to the longer but, but potentially easier route in red. And the route that they, they took was often flooded by mountain streams. It was known for having bandits and, and robbers. Uh, even uh, Roman history tells us that the Romans had trouble subduing this bandit activity uh, along this passage. But that's the passage that they took. Pisidian Antioch was also 3,600 feet above sea level. So, so there were elevation adjustments to make as well. And it's possible that Paul had this specific journey in mind when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 11 on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, as he was explaining some of what he has gone through in ministry. So so Luke sets us up, Paul and Barnabas go to Perga, and then to Pisidian Antioch. Next, they go to the synagogue. Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue, and we see that in verses 14 and 15. Now, they're not just there to join in Jewish worship. They're not there to say, hey, we've got to go to Jewish worship as is our custom. They're going there as witnesses of the gospel, So you need to understand that because sometimes uh, people will misunderstand or misrepresent the scripture to say things like, well, look at even the New Testament apostles were, were taking part in what would consider, you know, more considered to be Judaism or Jewish worship. But they weren't there for that purpose. They were there as witnesses of the gospel. And so, what happens is, Paul is invited to add interpretation and exhortation to the customary reading of the law and the prophets, which happened in synagogue services. So, if you went to a synagogue service, you would have the reading of the law, there would be a reading of the law, there would be a reading of the prophets. And then someone, usually someone in leadership, would ask someone else to give exhortation to those in attendance. And many times it would be from someone who was visiting who would be considered a special visitor. In this case, that's Paul. And he begins what is really considered to be a very powerful sermon. Now before I break down the sermon, I want to share with you just four things that you should know about this sermon before we even look at it, and I came up with a really creative way of saying that, what you should know about Paul's sermon. Yeah, that's about as creative as it gets. Uh, four, four things. He is in a Jewish synagogue. So again, just remember, uh, remember where he is at. We'll put this on the screen here for you to see. He's in a Jewish synagogue. His message is not exactly welcomed here. It, it, remember, you got as we look through this, we've got to remember the context. He's in this Jewish synagogue, and his message is is not really welcomed in terms of what he's going to be telling them. It's a God centered sermon, and, and I want to point this out in the beginning because I want you to see, I want you to see this as we go through the text. God is the subject of nearly every verb. In Paul's retelling of Jewish history. Now that is not unintentional. He, he is making it very clear that God is the central character of the story. Not, not Israel, not the Israelites, not the Jews, God, the God of the scriptures. It also reveals in this sermon, Christ as God, Christ as Savior, and Christ as King. And we will see that. And then you'll also see that Paul's message fits his audience, he knows who he's talking to. He's aware of that and he adjusts his message and how he, he doesn't, he doesn't remove truth, he doesn't change truth, he's not afraid, he's adjusting what he's saying to be more impactful to his audience. Oh, and one more thing that you should know is Paul's sermon does not have three points and his points do not all start with the same letter, So there's no alliteration. He missed his homiletics course. Just saying, just letting you know that this was really more of what it is that the Spirit was giving him and he was just declaring it. So I'm going to break this down. We're going to start with uh, the first point that I want to uh, tell you about that's coming out of his sermon. God is the sovereign author of all Jewish history. God is the sovereign author of all Jewish history. You see that in verse 21 and 22. You see the beginning uh, there of uh, verse uh, 16 where he says, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, You see that in verse 16? You can almost see before he even gets started that he's kind of just getting everyone to quiet down and listening to get their attention. He's drawing the attention in of his listeners. And then he retells history with a very clear, God-centered intent. He says, God chose our fathers. He said, God made the people great. God led them out. God was merciful to them in the wilderness. God is the one that destroyed their enemies. God is the one that gave them an inheritance. God is the one that gave them land. And Paul is directing his listeners and all of them to God. He is making sure the people know that God has been sovereignly reigning over their history from the very beginning. And they're listening to this and they're probably, you know, shaking their head in agreement. He's making much of the God of Israel. They can identify with this. And then he moves on. And the next point he makes is that Israel rejected God as their king by asking for a human king. So now he's kind of talking about some of the bad stuff that happened. You see that uh, in verse 21 where he says, and then they asked for a king. Paul reminds these Jews that the people of Israel asked Samuel for a king because they wanted to be like the other nations, if you read through those stories in the Old Testament, you'll see that it was not God who wanted them to have a human king. Why is that? God was their king, but they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a king they could see. They wanted a king that would that would stand before. Them. They wanted a king that was visible to them. And so they they asked the king. So God gave them Saul. But then God removed Saul and he raised up David to be king. I don't know if that's. Not sure where that's coming from. Okay. Try this again. So God, what he did is he gave them Saul, but then God removed Saul and he raised up David to be king. And Saul is telling them this and he most likely has been named after this king Saul. And Paul mentions what God said about David, a man after my heart, a man who will do my will. Now, we know the story of David, right? We, we know that David sinned and, and that he sinned greatly before the Lord, but we also know that David confessed his sin and that he desired to please his Lord and that he trusted in his God and that he had great faith in his God. It's one of, the, one of the things that stands out about the character of David, even through the fact that he had been disobedient and that he sinned, was that he would confess his sin and continued to trust God and God's ways. And so here we, it says that he was a man after my heart who will do my will. And so... Saul is letting these people know Israel rejected God as their king. And then, third, he moves on and he says, Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah, promised Savior, and promised King. So, look at verse 23 of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So, this is right now a transition. Paul makes a very significant and risky transition. Because so far, his message, his Jewish history, it's kind of resonating well with his listeners. But now, he moves to Jesus. And we've got to remember, you know, what's happened now with Jesus. He's been crucified, and he's not well-liked at all by the Jewish leaders. His, His followers are getting persecuted Paul's in a Jewish synagogue, and he moves to Jesus. He's going to stir up trouble. And in verse 23, Paul connects the offspring of David to Jesus. And then he connects it to prophecy. He doesn't just connect it to David. He connects it to prophecy, and he says, as he promised. And so now what he's doing is he's connecting Jesus to prophecy, and David to prophecy, and Jesus to the lineage of David. And he's basically saying, and the people are putting it together, they're adding it up, Jesus is the promised Davidic king. But then he also refers to Jesus as savior. He is savior, he is king, and and he's hitting them with this. And then he brings up John the Baptist. And he does that because John was also prophesied to come he was another one that was prophesied in the old testament to come as a forerunner to the messiah and also john the baptist was considered to be a prophet so after bringing up john he then says that john considered this jesus to be so powerful that john the baptist himself was not even worthy to untie his sandals which was such a lowly task, but John didn't even feel worthy to do that. And by saying this, Paul, what he was doing was he's elevating Jesus to these listeners. He's making it clear to these listeners that even the great John the Baptist saw Jesus for who he is. He's opening their eyes to who this Jesus is. Who he was In the past, because they know he has since been crucified, but who he is in the present, because he's risen. And then he goes on, and then the next point he makes is that this salvation, this Jesus, was sent to the Jews, and they rejected him. And so here, Paul gets real direct. He identifies the Jews by calling them sons of Abraham. Sons of Abraham, which they like to hear. They like to hear that because that, that they're, you know, they're, they're deepening their roots and their heritage. And then he says, also, you God-fears. And what he means by that is the God-fearing Gentiles who had adopted Jewish custom now and are believing in the Jewish God. And then he says, the message of this salvation has been sent to us. And he's including them. He's making it personal. He's drawing them in. And he means something. He means that God sent this Jesus, God sent this salvation to the Jews. He came through Abraham to the Jewish nation. And what did they do? What did they do? They did not recognize him. They did not understand what he was saying. They would not believe. They rejected him. So so again, this is not the real popular part of his message with this group. Because now they're included in the rejection. And then Paul makes a direct reference to what they're doing in the synagogues each week. Don't miss this, because this is real direct here. He, and he says to them, you know, you gather each week. And each week you hear the reading of the law. And each week you hear the reading of the prophets. And you want to know what? These scriptures that you're hearing, they testify to this Jesus, and yet you still reject him. He's reminding them of their gatherings and the fact that at these gatherings, they're hearing the word, but they're not understanding who it's talking about. Not only that, not only that, but the fact that you continue to reject him, don't miss this, it's actually fulfilling the very prophecies that you're reading, because you're reading prophecy about people rejecting him, and that's what you're doing, and you don't even realize that the people that the prophets are talking about are you. I mean, he's hitting them. This is this is direct, straightforward preaching. I, I was as this was hitting me, and I'm thinking about this text. It. It, I thought, boy, this is, a, this is a Paul Washer moment. I don't know if you guys know who he is, but he's known for saying, you know, um, I don't know why you're clapping, I'm talking about you. If you, if, you don't know what, if you don't know that message, you can Google him and listen to that message. But he's talking to this group of young people and they're all cheering him on. But in the talking, he's actually, he's actually exhorting them to true Christian living and they're all clapping. He's like, why are you clapping? I'm talking about you. You're the ones who need to straighten up. And they kind of stop clapping. They're like, oh. <laughs> Paul is saying these prophecies about rejecting the Messiah, they're about you. You read them each week. Yeah, you gather, you have the reading of the law, you have the reading of the prophets, but you do not realize that they're condemning you for your unbelief and for your rejection of Christ. You see how, do you see how easy it is for us to get religious and religion, religious tradition and go through the motions and not even realize or recognize what it is that we're doing? You, you, we all need to pray and ask God to help that not happen with us. Even in the gathering of our services and, and a lot of the things that we do are, are kind of repetitious. You know, we have, a, we have an opening song and then we have some announcements and then we have this. And, and, you know, and you can just kind of fall into, okay, now it's time for this and now it's time for that and it's getting closer to when I leave. You know, all these different things. But what we're supposed to be doing is you allowing these things to draw us in to the worship of God. And these people... Didn't even realize what was going on. Next, we see as Paul continues in this, in this sermon, he says, this is the good news we bring to you Jesus was innocent, yet he was crucified, but God raised him from the dead. So after he kind of hits them with, yes, you're the ones who rejected him, then look at verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. So he declares the crucifixion. And then he declares the resurrection and look at verse 32 and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this, he has fulfilled to us, their children by raising Jesus. He is connecting dots all over the place here. He's saying this good news that we're bringing to you, it's what God promised to our fathers. And there's the line, the dot from Jesus back to the Old Testament. And then he's coming all the way back. And he's fulfilled it to us, to all of you that I'm talking to you. How did he fulfill it? How did he fulfill what he told our fathers? He fulfilled it when he raised Jesus from the dead. And they're like, what? They're not, they, they, this, this was powerful teaching. And he tells them they found no guilt in Jesus that was worthy of death, yet the Jewish leaders begged Pilate to crucify him. I'm sure that wasn't a popular statement. And as a public speaker and someone who who talks in front of people often, you kind of know when you're getting to the part that no one wants to hear. And you're like, oh, I see it coming. And he just gives it out there. After After they did all that was prophesied, Again, another reference to God's hand. He keeps talking about prophecy. They took him down from the cross, laid him in a tomb, and then verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. God raised him up. You killed him. God raised him. That's, that's what he's saying. And when he says you, what he, what he's meaning, what he, what he means is the Jewish leaders And then he tells them for many days this risen Jesus appeared. People saw him, people heard him, and these people believed. And the people that believed, you know what they're doing now? They're telling others about Jesus, they're his witnesses. And Paul says, This is the good news that we're bringing to you. This is what we're here to tell you. The person and the work of Jesus, the Christ, he's our message. He is salvation. He's the good news. We're here to tell you about him. And then he goes on and says, Jesus, unlike David is Israel's living king. If you read verses 34 through 37, and you're like, that's confusing. I'm not really sure what, what Paul's saying there. What he's doing is he's quoting Old Testament scripture. He's going back into the psalm. He's, he's referencing some of what David wrote, and he's trying to make something clear. He's, he, he, he's trying to say, and by referencing psalms, that as great, as great as David was, he died. He saw corruption, But this new king, this Jesus, did not see corruption. He was raised to life. That's the point that that Paul is making to them. And he's saying he is the true king. He is Israel's king. He's the king of the Gentiles. He's the king of all kings, is what he's saying. But to do that, he has to elevate Jesus above David. David. And for some of these people, that was a problem. And then he goes on and he says, it's only through this resurrected Jesus that forgiveness of sins and freedom from the condemnation of the law can be found. It's only through this resurrected Jesus that forgiveness of sins and freedom from the condemnation of the law can be found. Look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. So now this is his concluding thought. Let it be known to you, That through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed. By the law of Moses. This is powerful. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law alright now he's really he is really talking about some difficult dangerous things here in this synagogue and then he references prophets, boy does he know the Old Testament, he references prophets in verse 41 that talk about rejecting and, and saying, and he's calling them scoffers and what he's doing is he's saying that's you If you reject what I'm saying, this Jesus only through this man can forgiveness of sins be found. It was true then in Pisidian Antioch, and it's still true today in Dallas, Pennsylvania. Through this man can forgiveness of sins be found. Not only that, but only by him can true freedom be found. Paul Paul is saying, all of you that I'm talking to, you've all tried to become free through the law. You've tried to obey the Mosaic law. You've obeyed ceremonial law. You've obeyed the oral law, the written law. You've tried it all. But the law does not free you. The law condemns you. Don't fulfill the prophets that speak about those who die in their sin." That's again that reference to verse 40 and 41. Don't don't fulfill those prophecies. Don't be those people. Beware of that, he's saying. Instead, believe in this Jesus. Be forgiven. Receive freedom. True freedom. The freedom that only comes through Christ. What a powerful sermon Paul preached that day in Pisidian Antioch. And it is still strong and still powerful, very powerful for us today. We're going to pick up next week and finish this chapter. But what I want to do now is see what we can learn and apply more, more intentionally in our own lives from this sermon. The first, the first point that I want to make that I think we can think about here and apply is, is really related to the title of the message, and that is our God is not only the God of past history, he's the God of all history. Amen. Do you realize that sometimes we act like God knew what he was doing in the past, but he somehow doesn't know what he's doing in the present? Do you find yourself doing that? You know, you read Old Testament, and you're like, man, look what God did. Then you read the newspaper, and you're like, what is going on? Well, nobody reads newspapers anymore, so you scroll on your phone, right? You look at your feed, and you're like, what is going on? Paul walked these people through the history of Israel, and he did that so that the people could see that this God had been the same God over all of Israel's history. But the God over history in the past is the same God over current history being made over what is happening right now. And if you fail to know, here, here's why this is important. If you fail to know and understand what it is that God has done in the past, which he has revealed in his word, if you, if you fail to know and understand that, you're gonna be blinded from seeing and understanding what he's doing in the present. Because you're, you're thinking, I don't need to know that. But that's Paul's whole point. What he was doing is saying, let me tell you all of what it is that God has done. If you're blinded to what God is doing, even in your life in the present, it could be because you're not yet learned and understood what he has done already for you in the past. Why is Paul doing this? Why is he preached this way? Is he preparing them for a Jewish history test? No, that's not what he's doing. He's not trying to get them to learn facts about the Jewish history so they can repeat back dates and names. He's projecting God. God is the focus. He's saying our God is faithful and he never changes. Our faith for today can grow as we learn and understand more of what our God has done and accomplished in the past and in history. Paul was trying to help his listeners understand that. It doesn't mean that history is, is doomed to repeat itself all the time. It's, the point is that you're seeing what it is that God has done in your life in the past. And recognizing what can I learn from that about what God is doing in the present and what he will do in the future. So seek him to know and understand what he's already done in your life. What he's already done and revealed in the scriptures. How he reveals himself. And how that can help you learn to live in the present. With courage. With faith. With assurance. With hope. And not fear, worry, and anxiety. The second point that I want to make related to this text that's very clear is that forgiveness, absolution, and freedom from guilt will never come through your own ability to keep God's law. And I could rephrase keep God's law to another phrase. We could say trying to be a really good person, trying to live a really good life, because in some manner what you're doing is saying I'm keeping some sort of of list of rules that I consider to be good and I'm avoiding the ones that are bad. If you're looking for forgiveness, absolution, and freedom from guilt and shame, it really will never come through your valiant attempts to keep rules and law doesn't mean that we are to be law breakers and, and seek to disobey. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we can't find forgiveness. We can't find freedom, absolution, the, 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 the reality or the ability to be absolved of, of things in the past through trying to just do what is right and good and live a good life and be a good person. This is what Paul was preaching that day. He was telling these law keepers that that room was filled with a group of people that would tell you they keep the law. Don't tell us we don't keep the law. We know the law and we keep the law. And Paul was telling them the law condemns you. Because you think you can keep it, but you can't. Because we mess up too much. We're too easily pleased with the offerings of the world. What we need, what Paul is saying is what we need is something better. What we need is something more powerful. What we need is the person who did keep the law, all of it, to save us. Because only he can forgive Only he can provide freedom. The law cannot change our hearts. Your heart cannot be changed by simply trying to be a better person. Or to do what is right and good all on your own. Do you know what happens, what the scripture teaches us? What happens when the law of God confronts our hearts? And I'm not talking, don't, don't think generally, think your heart. Think of your heart specifically. When the law of God confronts your heart, do you know what happens? It reveals the depth of our sin, we don't, we're not, the, the law doesn't confront our hearts and then we say, wow, look how good I'm doing. That's, we think that maybe we may feel that way, we may convince ourselves, but that's not what's happening. The law is actually saying, look at the depth of your sin because the law doesn't change hearts, but what it does do is reveal the depth of sin in our hearts, And don't you don't you see this happening in our world today? I mean, it's almost impossible to fathom the depth of sin and evil that possesses someone to needlessly murder and execute children. It's, it's the depth of evil that is involved there is almost too hard for us to imagine. And we respond in horror and we respond in shock. But what also do we immediately do? We, we move to certain things, right? One of the things we're clearly moving to right now is blame. And the other thing is that I'm noticing is more law. Laws will fix this. But what Paul's message, it's just funny how things happen in um, the timing of things, because this wasn't an intention of mine to even address this. But as I was thinking about the, in, the intention of this text, it addresses it. Because the heart behind acts like this is a law-breaking heart. And what we need and what the world needs is someone to heal that heart. To heal that brokenness. The brokenness in people that resort to this kind of evil. Which we know comes from our enemy. We know that's where this resides and where it comes from. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying the law, trying to be good enough, all it's gonna do is reveal the depth of sin in our hearts, but the message of salvation through Jesus, that renews evil hearts, right? We believe that? Like the message of the gospel renews evil hearts? I hope you still believe that. So Christians, we should, we should not be... More motivated to political action than we are to gospel action. When we hear things like this and we think, I got to get more motivated by po- political action, I think we hear a text like this and we say, Do we really want things to change? Then let's proclaim the heart changing message of Jesus to broken people, people who are determined to do evil. Because they need their hearts changed. And that's what this message does. And that's why Paul said, Don't try to follow the law. The law is just gonna burden you, it's gonna make you feel like you have no way out, it's gonna make you feel horrible about yourself, it's gonna bring out the evil in you. What you need is a Savior. And He's come. I was thinking about last week and our youth sharing testimonies of how the Lord Jesus Christ changed their life. How they've shared how the, growing up uh, in, in the church or through the relationships they've had, they shared testimony of how Christ has changed their life. Their hearts have been changed. They wanna live for Jesus. So as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, well, do we want to see more kids and teenagers like that? Like, do you want to see more of that? Rather than rather than what we what we might see in in the world, which is evil seeking to do evil? Do you want to see more of that? Then invest yourself in the lives of children and teens. And others around you that God has placed and bring them to Jesus. Bring the gospel to them because that's what they need. So, so really, our response to what we see happening is it's a reminder to us of, of the evil within humanity and the need for humanity to have the gospel proclaimed to them. The life changing gospel. Verse 26 says, brothers, sisters, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. It's to us. It's been given to us. And we bring you, verse 32, we bring you. Who's you? Well, for us, it's the broken world around us. We bring this broken world, this good news of Jesus And what do we proclaim? Verse 36, through this man, through Jesus, only Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you by him, by Jesus. Everyone who believes is freed from everything, including the brokenness of evil that's all around us. So may Paul's sermon and what we've heard actually be an encouragement and exhortation and a motivation for us to be more committed to the proclamation of the life-giving gospel of Jesus and to love other people and to share that hope with them in whatever opportunities God has given to each one of us because the world needs it. We're reminded of that all too often. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for the giving of Jesus. We thank you for the message of salvation having been given to us and that this good news is given to us to proclaim. And the message that we proclaim is that forgiveness of sins is available to the broken world And freedom from the bondage of sin, freedom from the bondage of evil is offered through Jesus. Lord, help each one of us to see the true treasure that we've been given in the message of the gospel. May we not believe the lie of the enemy that what the world needs are a bunch of human fixes and not and ignore the treasure of the gospel as what is needed to change hearts. So Lord God, continue to help us to see Jesus Christ as he has been revealed in this text today. As God, as Savior, and as King. And may we, as his people, continue to live in allegiance to him as our King for his glory and honor. We thank you, Lord God, for your work and for your love and your compassion to us. Give us strength to respond as we should and also courage to make you known as we should in every situation that you place us in, Lord, providentially. We give you praise for that. And we continue to declare to you how great you are and how thankful we are that you are our true king. In Jesus' name, amen.